welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance, a division of Panacea Healthcare Solutions. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help you manage every aspect of a compliance program. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, cybersecurity, as well as international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims. In addition to being extensively published and a sought-after presenter and quoted expert, Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award, and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas and is admitted to practice before all state courts as well as the United States Supreme Court and the District Court of the District of Columbia and all four federal court districts in the state of Texas. She is a fellow of the Federal Bar Association and currently she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee a board member of the Federal Bar Association's Key Tom section and co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's on Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities Second Edition, as well as co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International HIPAA Considerations? She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25, and Houstonian Magazine's top lawyers for healthcare. In 2019, she was also named to the National Trial Lawyer Association's top 100, as well as First Healthcare Compliance's top presenter in 2019 and 2022. Ms. Rose is also an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. See www.rvrose.com for additional information. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box on your control panel during the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be, be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast, see their website for details. Rachel, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. And thank you, Catherine. It's always my pleasure to work with you and First Healthcare Compliance. Thank you. So today we're talking about a very important topic, the increasing role of the Federal Trade Commission in the poaching of PHI, a discussion of BetterHelp, GoodRx, and Flow, as well as some other related topics. So no presentation is complete without a disclaimer, and the information presented here today is not meant to constitute legal advice. If you have advice on a particular issue, please contact an attorney. Having said that, I'm always welcome to take questions. The information presented is current as of the date of the original court recording of the presentation, and given the dynamic nature of the topic, participants are encouraged to check the relevant government websites and court websites for the most recent information. So what are some recent headline highlights? What is privacy? I'm going to begin with a recap of HIPAA and the related laws and rules, and then delve into liability implications for not obtaining appropriate patient consumer consent before using sensitive information. That's intertwined with enforcement actions by the Federal Trade Commission, 
class actions and a very recent settlement by the U.S. Department of Justice. And then I'll end with some other considerations, including risk mitigation. So here I always begin typically with headline highlights. And on March 2nd of 2023, the administration announced national cybersecurity strategy. And basically there were two main takeaways. First, rebalancing the responsibility to defend cyberspace by shifting the burden for cybersecurity away from individuals, small businesses, and local governments, and onto organizations that are most capable and best positioned to reduce risks for all of us. And along those same lines, realigning incentives to favor long-term investments by striking a careful balance between defending ourselves against urgent threats and simultaneously strategically planning for and investing in a resilient future. And from my perspective as a lawyer who has represented whistleblowers in this area, who actually does the HIPAA risk analyses and who represents persons in front of various government agencies post breach, as well as helping companies develop their compliance programs, I always subscribe to the National Institute for Standards and Technology approach. And I like to distill it down into three buckets, and that is prevention, detection, and correction. And if you're framing your compliance program around cybersecurity, with those three buckets in mind as they relate to technical, administrative, and physical safeguards, you're in a great position not only for the short term, but also for the long term as well. And not only does the government need to use all tools of its national power, which we've seen recently in its coordination with other government agencies, around the world. One notable recent event was the FBI and other U.S. law enforcement agencies coordinating with a variety of different agencies all over the world to bring down Hive, which is a known ransomware state actor. And because of that, and because of their focus being on cyber security is patient safety, that's something that can translate into clean water being public safety and so forth and so on. So all of those things are what I'd like to bear in mind when approaching anything related to privacy or security. So this is significant in Texas, there was a privacy suit brought against Meta in relation to its biometric law. And there was a recent update on this case. The case was filed in February 2022 by the Texas AG's office, claiming that the company, the company being Meta, violated the state's biometric privacy law and deceptive trade practices act by misleading the public into believing it did not collect biometric data. Okay, prior to the Texas suit, Meta announced in November 2021 that it would stop using facial recognition technology after entering a $650 million settlement in a punitive class action claiming it violated Illinois users' biometric privacy rights Litigation is ongoing. This is one to keep a pulse on because BIPA is Illinois' biometric privacy law. And the more we see other AGs getting involved in this space, another area of cyber risk is going to pop up. And that means potential legal risk, it means financial risk and reputational risk. So all of these factors, it's imperative whenever a new law comes out or at a very, very minimum, at least once a year, 
when organizations should be reviewing and updating their policies and procedures that you have the various state laws included as well as HIPAA and the Federal Trade Commission breach notification rule, et cetera. So that's just an area of focus. So what is privacy? Well, privacy is paramount and there is an emerging trend regarding data tracking and sale without the patient knowledge or consent. And this is particularly troubling from a lot of different standpoints. So a Midwestern hospital system is treating its use of Google and Facebook web tracking technologies as a data breach, notifying 3 million individuals that the computing giants may have obtained patient information. One example of this is Flow, which was a June 2021 enforcement action, which I am going to be talking about. And then HHS OCR issued guidance on tracking. Part of this stems from the repealing of Roe versus Wade, and this presentation is not about abortion or anyone's position on that. Part of this presentation, though, does focus on privacy and the implications under the Constitution post-Roe. So here are two quotes which really stood out to me by the Federal Trade Commission. The first is, when a person struggling with mental health issues reaches out for help, they do so in a moment of vulnerability and with an expectation that professional counseling services will protect their privacy. And this was in response to the Better Help case, which is in the title of the presentation. And instead, BetterHelp betrayed consumers most personal health information for profit. Let this proposed order be a stout reminder to prioritize defending American sensitive data from illegal exploitation. Well, let's step back for a moment. First, notice that the FTC uses the term consumer and not patient. That's because the Federal Trade Commission Act, specifically Section 5, relates to consumer rights and consumer protections. It's not patient rights. And so just as Flow was and is an app where a consumer voluntarily joined the app, it wasn't directed by a physician or part of a health care entity's own app or integration into its medical records, this was an example where the consumer went on their own looking for help in specifically mental health and counseling. So right there we know that mental health records, substance use records, STDs, there are a lot of certain types of information which are considered to have a higher street value or a higher remuneration value in any given what may be commercial transaction that would under certain circumstances be reasonable. But under the Federal Trade Commission Act as well as under the HHS, OCRs, HIPAA, a couple of items really stand out and that is both require not only notice but also consent of the patient and we'll delve into that but the key item here consumers is the federal trade commission is tasked with consumer rights versus hhs ocr is tasked with patient rights so that's one thing to bear in mind throughout the presentation so what about privacy in medicine well Let's look at a couple of items. AMA is an abbreviation for against medical advice. And basically, that is the self-discharge of a patient from a healthcare facility, contrary to what his or her physicians perceive to be in the patient's best interest. Now, HIPAA gives a person a right over his or her own health information, including the right to get a copy of the information Make sure it is correct and know who has seen it. By law, 
your health information can be used and shared for specific reasons not directly related to your care, like making sure doctors give good care. We have all been through COVID. One of the exceptions is the public health exception. I note the flu here, but it can be STDs. It can be a pandemic situation where providers do have that requirement. It also comes about in relation to potential child exploitation or child harm. So there are certain instances where in fact, a individual can uh, report as a provider without getting permission. Now, there are also a lot of other instances where the person needs permission. And two of those instances occurs when there is the sale and marketing of protected health information or sensitive, personally identifiable information, whether as a consumer or as a patient. And as we've heard already, that falls under two different laws, those specific terms. So let's go back a little bit on privacy, uh, specifically to the US Supreme Court's opinion in May of 1891. So an injured woman's right to refuse examination by the railroad company's doctor, specifically to compel anyone and especially a woman to lay bare the body or to submit it to the touch of a stranger without lawful authority is an indignity, the justices wrote. No right is held more sacred or is more carefully guarded by the common law. And common law means non-statute, it is court-derived, than the right of every individual to the possession and control of his or her own person. Quoting another judge, they added, the right to one's person may be said to be a right of complete immunity to be left alone. So the US Constitution privacy provisions really began to take shape in Griswold versus the state of Connecticut, which stems back to 1965 and really was a precursor to Roe. In this case, it was the first time the US Supreme Court declared a right of privacy as implicit in the Constitution and involving the choice to use contraception. The rationale for finding a constitutional right of privacy was evidenced repeatedly in the Constitution's text by specific guarantees. Justice William Douglas's majority opinion pointed out the following. First, that certain rights reflected heightened concern with privacy, including the Fourth Amendment's protection of persons, papers, and effects from government searches. Secondly, the Third Amendment's bar against quartering soldiers in private homes. And lastly, the Fifth Amendment's guarantee against compelling individuals to surrender evidence against themselves. So from there we get to Roe and Casey. And Casey is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And this came out of the state of Pennsylvania and all the way up to the Supreme Court. But basically what Roe did was to provide a constitutional right to an abortion and relied upon the right of privacy. Now, Casey came about, and what's fascinating to me about Casey is it's basically premised on informed consent. And informed consent is something that is inherent in bioethics, specifically decisional rights. So I teach bioethics, and it's something that I've done for a decade. And in order to obtain consent, first you have to determine whether or not the person has decision-making capacity. Then from there, in order to determine consent, there's a four-step process that I use the acronym URAC for, but basically a provider has to let the individual know of his or her potential benefits and detriments, as well as the risks inherent in any given procedure. And a procedure could even be a diagnostic test, for example. So all of these factors, the understanding, the reasoning, getting the, I call it assimilation, but basically what it is, is that there is an agreement that the patient 
understands and is able to reason and then repeats that back to the provider and then ultimately gives consent. So once those four elements are in play, that communication is key. So for me, Casey really didn't raise anything new. Basically, and this is probably why the court ruled as it did, they said that it does not underlie or override an abortion right. Basically, what they're saying is you need to tell the patient of the pros and cons of this procedure. And that's basically it. Informed consent provision is not an undue burden on a woman's constitutional right to decide to terminate a pregnancy. So here we see safeguards in place to ensure that people are well informed before they undergo any procedure, including an elective abortion, or for that matter, if they have decision-making capacity, what's called a DNC, an elective abortion is a DNE. But a DNC can occur if there is, for example, a ectopic pregnancy in which the fetus is never viable, or something can happen in utero and the fetus could in fact uh, be non-viable in utero. And so there's a procedure, a DNC, obviously any sane and reasonable person is not gonna have a woman carry a fetus until it were to expel on its own given the risk of sepsis and other infection and rupture. So all of those factors come into play. So what happened with Roe and the repealing of Roe in the Dobbs opinion was that they said, well, it's not only limited to Roe. And this is where the problem emerges because it now got into privacy and medical privacy as a whole. And that's particularly problematic, but thankfully we have other laws which are regulatory in which to rely. And that's what the federal government has done. It is really honed in on HIPAA. And although HIPAA does have law enforcement exceptions, those have to be balanced with the right to search and seizure. So there are various safeguards in place, but it's imperative for compliance officers, inside counsel, outside counsel, and executives and providers to appreciate exactly what they need to do in order to protect the patient's privacy, what exceptions apply, and what are the potential state laws that are in play. I will note that in the Dobbs opinion, Justice Kavanaugh said, I agree with the majority's opinion. I am making clear that this does not impact any other measure of the Constitution, including the Commerce Clause. So what he is saying is that even if a state that you reside in or I reside in prohibits certain forms of treatment, if you or I were to go to another state where it's legal, going back into the state where we, we reside should not render any liability because we went out of state in order to get that treatment. And so Justice Kavanaugh was very express on that. So the Commerce Clause is in play. There have been various bills and legislation which have been introduced, and that's something to keep a pulse on both on the House and the Senate, especially in the upcoming weeks. So in terms of a recap of HIPAA and the related rules, under federal HIPAA, we have covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors. It's important to note the state laws and how they may differ. As those of you who have heard me present before have indicated, a state such as Texas has a much broader definition of covered entity, which not only includes business associates and subcontractors, but really applies to anyone who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. Then we have the Federal Trade Commission. So while HIPAA and the related medical types of laws, such as Texas House Bill 300, which has been around since 2012, September of 2012, focus on patients, the Federal Trade Commission, as I mentioned at the outset, really focuses on consumers. And so that is the 
key to that differentiation because consumer protection and deceptive trade practices act violations really impact consumers even though the consumer may also be a patient but as i mentioned with flow that wasn't a a patient type of situation the way i looked at flow although it was information that was being collected for a sensitive purpose mainly monitoring uh, menses and ovulation cycle, it's really no different than if someone hooks up their heart rate monitor and there's a significant amount of data that's available related to that person's heart. Again, you don't want that data related to your heart being sold through Facebook or your app to another entity without your knowledge. So legislative history, what are some good aspects of HIPAA that are essential to highlight? First, HIPAA goes back to 1996. In August of 2022, the final privacy rule was published. I say the privacy, the final privacy rule because there was an initial rule that was published in December of 2000. And then we have the security rule, which was published in February of 2003, but became effective in 2005. From there, we moved to 2009 with the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, also known as the High Tech Act, which actually is part of the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act of 2009. From there, we get the breach notification rule, we get some proposed regulations, and then we get the omnibus rule. And the omnibus rule was published in the Federal Register on January 25th of 2013, and the effective date was March 26th of 2013, and then most of the areas had a compliance of September 23rd. The citation for that is 78 Federal Register 5566. After this time in 2015, we have the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, and that's where we get Section 405D, which is important because a public-private partnership and collaborative was formed, and a lot of really good resources came out of that for businesses of all sizes and HHS has a specific website that is designated to 405D and the various compliance items that are available. From there we go to 2016 and we have the 21st Century Cures Act which was signed into law in December of 2016 and the two final rules were published in the Federal Register in May of 2020. The two final rules, one was published by CMS, the other by ONC. Information blocking is dominant in the ONC final rule. So that's something that's important. So why is all of this important and how does it relate to the Federal Trade Commission? Well, we're getting there. But basically what we're finding here, and this goes to what I talk about a lot in terms of compliance, if you have an adequate culture of compliance, if you do your annual risk analyses, annual training, annual policy and procedure review, you encrypt it, rest in transit, et cetera, et cetera, you are going to be in a better position to mitigate fines as well as potential early audit termination by the government. Now, recognized security practice means standards, guidelines, and best practices. And everyone who is listening to this webinar, unless you are brand new to healthcare or cybersecurity, should know about the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the approaches promulgated under 405D of the Cybersecurity Act and other programs and processes that address cybersecurity and that are developed, recognized, and promulgated through regulations under other statutory authorities. Such practices shall be determined by covered entities and business associates consistent with the HIPAA security rule. All of this is important because part of the HIPAA security rule and the related privacy rule goes to obtaining patient consent. 
And HR 7898 was signed into law on January 5th of 2022. So this is, or sorry, 2021. So it's been around for about two years now. And it is something that if you follow this type of protocol, you're in a much better position to run afoul of the law. So does HIPAA have criminal provisions? Oh, yes, they do. And the U.S. Department of Justice has jurisdiction to enforce criminal penalties for HIPAA pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1320 D6. Now, criminal liability may attach when persons knowingly use or cause to be used a unique health identifier, obtain individually identifiable health information, or disclose PHI to another person, in each case in a manner that violates HIPAA requirements. Other laws, such as the Store Communications Act, or the Electronic Store Communications Act, or potentially the False Claims Act, even if the government decides to take something criminal, can be utilized. It's also neat to note that the first criminal HIPAA violation actually concerned a person going in at UCLA and viewing celebrity information, colleagues' information, for either intent to harm or for personal gain. And anytime you have these types of conduct, which are up on the screen right now, viewing PHI without authorization or being on the care team or billing team handling the particular patient, accessing PHI and using it for financial gain, which includes a sale of PHI, that is what the Federal Trade Commission is honed in on perpetrating a ransomware attack and stealing PHI, and providing pharmaceutical or medical device representatives with access to patient records in exchange for remuneration. The same applies to the app situation that we're seeing the Federal Trade Commission go after. This may also lead to a False Claims Act violation or another enforcement action by a government agency, such as the Federal Trade Commission. So what are some recent enforcement actions? Well, we have some examples. First, the DOJ jelly bean settlement. And since we're in the spring and the Easter timeframe, this should be an easy one to remember. So here, this is actually the second or third type of settlement under the DOJ's Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. And I was fortunate to represent the whistleblower in the first DOJ Civil Cyber Fraud Enforcement Action. So here, Jelly Bean Communications Design and Jeremy Spinks have agreed to pay 293,771 to resolve False Claims Act allegations that they failed to secure PHI on federally funded Florida Children's Health Insurance. What is disturbing about this is A, the conduct went on for nearly seven years. If you look January 1, 2014 through December 14th of 2020, contrary to its representations and agreements and on resources. Secondly, around December 2020, more than 500,000 applications submitted on healthykids.org were revealed to have been hacked, potentially exposing the applicant's personally identifiable information and other data. And these are kids, and that opens up a whole host of other cyber vulnerabilities and very unfortunate conduct that can occur. So the United States alleged that Jelly Bean was running multiple outdated and vulnerable applications, including some software that Jelly Bean had not updated or patched since November 2023. In response to this data breach and Jelly Bean's cybersecurity failures, FHKC shut down the website's application portal in December of 2020. So again, this is material. 
False Claims Act liability is not a joke. Oftentimes there could be a corporate integrity agreement that's entered into on top of a settlement. So here we have the GoodRx matter, which is mentioned in today's title. And the United States of America versus GoodRx Holdings is a Northern District of California U.S. District Court case. This case is unique for three main reasons. First, DOJ acted on behalf of the Federal Trade Commission and brought the lawsuit in the United States District Court. Second, action was brought under the Federal Trade Commission Act, which authorizes the plaintiff to seek and the court to order permanent injunctive relief, civil penalties, and other relief for good RX's acts and practices in violation of Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, which is what I mentioned at the outset, and in violation of the health breach notification rule. And this case is unique because it is the first time since the FTC's health breach notification rule became law in 2009 that it, it has in fact been utilized. So since at least 2017, GoodRx said that it would share users, PHI and other personal data only for limited and appropriate purposes, that it would restrict third parties' use of the information, and that it would never share personal health information with advertisers or other third parties. Well, apparently they did that. And moreover, they said HIPAA secure, patient data protected. So there you have an outward facing statement which consumers would detrimentally rely on given that allegedly all of the safeguards were not in place and that's what happened here. So in this case on February 1st of 2023, the proposed order included a permanent injunction and civil penalty judgment as well as other relief. So next, the FTC to ban BetterHelp from revealing consumers data. Now BetterHelp is the one we touched upon earlier with that quote. And basically, they are required to pay $7.8 million for deceiving consumers after promising to keep sensitive personal data private. Now, here, the FTC issued a proposed order banning online counseling service, BetterHelp Inc., from sharing consumers' health data, including sensitive information about mental health challenges for advertising. The proposed order also requires the company to pay $7.8 million to consumers to settle charges that it revealed consumers' sensitive data with third parties, such as Facebook and Snapchat, for advertising after promising to keep such data private. So again, this, for those of you who are familiar with HIPAA, that's no different than a physician's office or a hospital giving access to patient records so that medical device or pharmaceutical companies can use that data and then move forward along those lines. This is the first commission action returning funds to consumers whose health data was compromised. Also, the FTC's proposed order will ban better help from sharing consumers' personal information with certain third target uh, third parties for retargeting. So again, this comes down to obtaining patient consent and the right for the patient to opt out even if they give that consent. And for those of you who get your medications through any known pharmacy, as you may know, a person has the right to uh, receive text messages or emails indicating when their prescription needs to be refilled and when the prescription is ready. And so even if you give that permission initially in order to meet the legal requirements, you also have to give the patient or the consumer the right to opt out of that as well. So the Federal Trade Commission has actually been in the game of protecting data privacy and security in healthcare settings, at least stemming back to 2009 with its CVS settlement 
Then there was a settlement against Rite Aid. And then later on, closer to 2018 or so, there was a settlement with Henry Sheen Dental for indicating to providers that its EHR platform was HIPAA compliant. And in fact, it was not. So that was deemed to be misleading. I mentioned flow and here, this actually is before the repealing of Dobbs. And as you can see, this was always something that was concerning to the government. And here the Federal Trade Commission finalized a settlement to require Flow Health Inc. to obtain affirmative consent of the users of the company's fertility tracking app before sharing their PHI with others and to obtain an independent review of their privacy practices. So much like Better Health and some of the other situations, GoodRx, what you see here is Flow sharing this data just carte blanche with marketing and analytics firms, including Facebook and Google, and remuneration is coming down the line there. So interestingly, we get to see our friend Facebook Meta, and Meta is what Facebook changed its uh, name too. So Facebook parent Meta agrees to pay $725 million to settle a class action privacy lawsuit. This is material because of the cost and also the underlying cause of action that claimed the social media giant gave third parties access to user data without their consent. This is a pure data. This is a pure consumer action. We're not even necessarily talking about protected health information, but sensitive, personally identifiable information. And as we saw early on with the Texas AG suit, we also get into biometrics. And biometrics do constitute one of the 18 identifying factors, which is set forth in HIPAA. So as we round out today's presentation and open the floor for questions, I wanted to highlight some key areas that every compliance program should have. First, annual risk analyses are critical and conducting a risk analysis is the first step in identifying and implementing safeguards that comply with and carry out the standards and implementation specifications not only for the security rule but also for the privacy rule so that should be step one step two the business associate agreement is absolutely critical and you can also have data privacy and security agreements, the BAA is implemented between two persons who deliver goods or services between another. The HIPAA authorization in the notice of privacy practices is specific to consumers and to patients. So that's where you would need to have information in a healthcare setting if you're a covered entity, a business associate or a subcontractor about giving the patients the option of consenting to having their data used for sales and marketing purposes, as well as having it uh, given the ability to opt out of it. And for the BAA, I've included some of the sample provisions, which HHS set forth. And I know First Healthcare Compliance has a great diagram just as an overview of the BAA. I mentioned NIST and how I distill it down into prevention, detection, and correction. And here are the five steps, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. CISA ransomware guidance. CISA is the uh, cybersecurity um, infrastructure Se um, security administration. And it is absolutely critical that when you're looking at policies and procedures, as well as training, that you incorporate malware and ransomware training, as well as looking at what CISA recommends as best practices. Here, you maintain, maintain offline backups, maintain regularly updated gold images of critical systems in the event that they need to be rebuilt, and maintain a comprehensive incident response plan.
Finally, as we round out today's presentation, as we've seen, the Federal Trade Commission is taking a more active role, and we have a couple of nuances to the GoodRx enforcement action, as well as the BetterHelp enforcement action. Secondly, HIPAA violations can carry criminal penalties, and the DOJ does have the ability to move forward with the criminal side of HIPAA and may actually work in tandem with the Federal Trade Commission as well. Cybersecurity is a team effort and the overall objective should be to cultivate a culture of compliance. Cyber criminals are becoming increasingly more sophisticated, so ensuring that the requisite technical, administrative, and physical safeguards are in place is absolutely critical to mitigating the risk of a cyber attack as well as managing cybersecurity risk. And finally, the DOJ's focus on cybersecurity, which includes illicit gain and downstream use of PHI, is going to be an area to keep a pulse on. So with that, Catherine, I'll turn the floor back over to you. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. And that's always it's always a very informative uh, webinar with you, and this one was no different, extremely informative. So thank you so much for your presentation. Oh, thank you, Catherine. It's always my pleasure. So we do have a few questions. The first one is concerning the Federal Trade Commission Act. Can you explain how that differs exactly from HIPAA? Sure. So first, HIPAA focuses on patients and the Federal Trade Commission focuses on consumers. And so there are different actions that the Federal Trade Commission may take, which we saw. For example, Flow isn't a covered entity. It doesn't have that type of definition which makes it a covered entity, the same as our Fitbits, right? Or our noon diet tracking, whatever it may be. There is health information in there, but it doesn't necessarily make one a covered entity. And that's important because as we know, covered entities are providers, healthcare claims clearinghouses, and health insurance companies under federal HIPAA. We know in Texas that that definition is broader. So again, state nuances are very important. But the Federal Trade Commission, as I mentioned previously in some of the presentations that we've done, really bridges the gap between fitting into those three buckets, covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors under federal HIPAA, and any entity that is collecting, receiving, utilizing, or putting out a platform for consumers to use. And that's what we have here in relation to the flow settlement in particular. So consumers versus patients, potentially a broader scope, and the penalties are potentially different. All right. And so why is the Federal Trade Commission getting more involved in data privacy? I know you covered this some, but if you could maybe delve into that a little bit more. So why is the Federal Trade Commission becoming increasingly involved in data privacy? In data privacy. They are becoming more involved in data, data privacy because the focus of the federal government. And as we know, the White House issued executive orders after the solar winds and colonial pipelines attack. And then at the beginning of March of 2023, we really see the administration's objectives and overall policy goals in terms of cybersecurity. So that's something that is absolutely paramount here. And then lastly, we have the initiatives that are being focused on by all government agencies. And that's really thwarting state actors as well as protecting individuals' privacy and security. Okay, and maybe just one more question. You touched on it briefly when you mentioned Texas. I know that Texas 
and California both have more stringent laws than federal. Could you talk about that just a little bit briefly? Sure. So as I mentioned, it's imperative to look at the state laws versus the federal laws. And one of the biggest items that really jumped out at me with Texas HIPAA versus federal HIPAA is the definition of covered entity. Under federal HIPAA, we have three main buckets of or categories of entities that fall under the umbrella of a covered entity. And that is a provider, a healthcare claims clearinghouse, and health insurance companies. We also have business associates which create, receive, maintain, or transmit protected health information between themselves and a covered entity. It might be possible for a covered entity to be what's known as a hybrid covered entity where they might have portions of their business which are under the same corporate entity uh, that are more business associate related than a covered entity related, so they're considered a hybrid covered entity. Then we have subcontractors, which actually fall under the definition of a business associate under federal HIPAA, and subcontractors create, receive, maintain, or transmit protected health information with that business associate. Now, what's important to note is that that business associate agreement is required between a federal covered entity and business associate and a business associate and its subcontractor. By way of contrast, Texas House Bill 300, again, which has been in place since September of 2012, so we're over the decade mark with that law, has one definition. And their definition of covered entity not only includes those three buckets under federal HIPAA of covered entity, business associate, and subcontractor, but it also includes the anyone, really, who creates, receives, maintains, or transmits protected health information. All right, great. So I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up our webinar right now, but I wanted to encourage anyone who is part of this webinar to seek out a podcast that we're going to have on this later, and it'll be with a very similar name. You can also watch this again on our YouTube channel, so that'll be a good resource too. Did you have any other words of advice that you wanted to leave with us today? Only that in the healthcare sector and for consumers, the DOJ, FBI, HHS, Federal Trade Commission, they're all adopting the notion of cybersecurity as patient safety. So that's something that I would encourage all participants to place in their policies and procedures and use in their training, really to drive the point home to all of their workforce members. Okay, all right, thank you so much. Um, and I want to thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you. And attendees, thank you so much. Please use the contact information for Rachel. And if you have any other questions that you think of later, please contact me and I'll forward it on to Rachel. Please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.